want to introduce uh, Pastor Rob Hatting. Many of you know Pastor Hatting from previous camps and has spoken here a number of times, and then others may be meeting him for the first time. Uh, has become a very good friend. He's a Baptist pastor at uh, Christ Covenant in Tulsa, uh, Louisiana, which is uh, outside of Lake Charles. How long have you been there? Two years, two months. Two years, two months. So, uh, you're going to really enjoy what he has for you today, and I'm very thankful for calling friend and Pastor uh, Bluestone, please. course of my life, I have learned things about myself, and in the last few years, I have learned that I love pigs. <laughs> it's a strange thing to discover about yourself when you're 60 years old. Oh, I like pigs. So, uh, we ended up with a piece of property and decided we had to do something with it, so we started, uh, we, we bought some pigs a couple of years ago, and uh, we, we started with four pigs. And now we have 40 pigs. Wow. And we have baby pigs running all over the place. It's, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, I'm going to tell you a story about a certain pig. His name is Maurice. His name was Maurice. <laughs> so we got these four pigs and we decided, well, we need to enter into a breeding program. So it's not just enough to raise pigs. We want to make more pigs and we make more pigs and we can sell pigs and have pigs and we'll just be pig people. And so we had these four pigs, our first four pigs. We had two girl pigs. They're called gilts before they have babies. Two gilts that were going to be breeders. And then we had a... a, a a male who was a confirmed bachelor, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and then uh, we had another female. And so those two were going to be our feeders. We are going to raise those and turn them into pork. Well, we needed a male, a boar, to help with the procreation process. Do you all know how that works? <laughs> so we got a, a, a male pig whose name was Maurice <laughs> and it turned out that Maurice was a jerk <laughs> I love pigs I love all of our pigs I hate pighead Maurice <laughs> So we, you know, talked about what we're going to do with Maurice. What's, you know, what's, what's, we, we hate this pig. He's, he's a jerk. He'll come after you and try to bite you and do all the other things. And he's mean to the other pigs. And so last week, Maurice got a ride. We, he got to go for a ride to this place. And I just, just got a phone call uh, asking me, how do you want Maurice cut up? And so, <laughs> We have a bunch of baby pigs. That's just the story of my life. Either. We we raise chickens and pigs, and uh, hopefully next year we'll have a couple of cows and some sheep and uh, all that. We have rabbits too. Uh, I had this idea. So here's a this is an interesting little factoid. Apparently, 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 with 
a male and two female rabbits, a buck and two does, you can generate as much protein in a year as you can with one steer. That's a lot of meat. But you know what has to happen in order for that to happen? The pig, or not the pigs, the rabbits have to breed. Now, it's a myth about rabbits that they're breeding machines. And I say myth because that's all it is. We have rabbits that are completely uninterested in breeding. So I have three pet rabbits. Uh, and I'm going to... Uh, hey, anybody want rabbits? No? All right. So anyway, I'll have more stories for you later about my family. They're more entertaining than the pig story. Okay. Um, so what I'm going to do over the course of the next couple of my, my two talks is I'm going to I'm going to begin a conversation today. I'm going to begin an idea, and then I'm going to finish it tomorrow. This is a kind of a part one, um, and then uh, we're going to leave it hanging, and we'll finish it tomorrow. And I um, I, I want to start by reading from a prophet, one of your own, whose name is Billy Eilish. <laughs> uh, how's that working, Jeff? That's uh, kind of ripping on your deal yesterday. So, um, apparently, and I, I've not heard the song, but there's a song that she's got. It's a new song. And, and the title is, What Was I Made For? How many of y'all have heard this song? Ask okay. Neil. <laughs> Big Billy Eilish fan, Okay. So what I'm going to do, I don't know what the song sounds like, but I have before me the lyrics. And so I'm going to read them for you. Just as they're written. I'm going to try to be true to the poetic form, such as it is. What Was I Made For by Billie Eilish I used to float now I just fall down I used to know but I'm not sure now what was I made for what was I made for taking a drive I was ideal looked so alive turns out I'm not real just something you pay for what was I made for? Because I, I, I don't know how to feel, but I want to try. I don't know how to feel, but someday I might, someday I might. And then the post-chorus goes like this. Mm, mm, <laughs> ah, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> Verse 3. <laughs> when did it end, all the enjoyment? I'm sad again, don't tell my boyfriend. It's not what he's made for. What was I made for? Because I, because I, I don't know how to feel, but I want to try. I don't know how to feel, but someday I might. Someday I might. And then the outro. I think I forgot how to be happy. Something I'm not, but something I can be. Something I wait for. Something I'm made for. 
something I'm made for. This is someone interacting with the question, why am I here? I'm going to read from Colossians chapter 3, the first 17 verses, and then we'll pray and then I'll talk a bunch more. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with God in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our God, we pray that you would give us wisdom to know faith and to believe who you have made us to be. We pray that you would give us strength and courage to walk the path of righteousness as we have been created to do. We pray that you would multiply the value of these words and that you would cause them to fall on fertile hearts, hearts willing and eager to believe and obey all that you command. And we pray this in the name of and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So the reality of identity is inescapable. Everyone has an identity. You're born into the world with an identity. And actually, you have several identities. Uh, you have a family identity. When you're born into the world, a name is put on you. A name that you don't get to choose. A name that you have, you may not even like. But it's a name that is put on you. It is your identity. You have a, a family reputation that you're born into. In this, in this country, if at one point, if you were born and your last name was Kennedy, that meant something. Like there, was, there were things that were associated with that. Not only do you have these familial identities, you have a heritage identity. You have this DNA that tracks 
your DNA is a result of your lineage. Um, your identity um, is also a result of your spiritual lineage. When we read in Matthew 1 the genealogy of Jesus, this is of more importance than mere bloodline, right? There's a spiritual uh, uh, heritage that's being demonstrated here. It shows that he is the descendant of faithfulness and that his lineage was guided by God's providence. You also have uh, the identity of uh, sex. Um, I don't say gender if I can help it. Uh, you, you are male or female. That's an identity that you have. Uh, you have uh, ethnic identity. You have national identity or regional identity. Um, I now live in southwest Louisiana, which means that my identity is that of a Cajun, which means that I eat Cajun food, I say Cajun things, and I live with my people, the Cajuns. <laughs> and this continues on throughout our lives. We have socioeconomic identities. You're, identi you're identified with and by the friends that you keep. You are known by these people. You're known by your reputation. The things that you do in your life, the way you act, the way you conduct yourself, the way that you, uh, the way that you speak in the world, all of this forms your identity. You're known as a certain person. Uh, you're known by sometimes the college that you went to, uh, the job that you have, the neighborhood you live in, the cell phone you choose, the car you drive, the football team you root for, and, and on and on. The point is that identity is inescapable. We're all identified. We are, each of us, a part of something bigger than ourselves in so many ways. The way that we answer the question, who am I, is often something that we do in terms of our own understanding of ourselves. We ask ourselves, who am I? We look to our, to our own thoughts. We look to our own resources. How can I conceive of myself in this world? Um, we look inside ourselves trying to answer life's questions. And of all of the creatures that God made. We are uniquely situated to be introspective. We have the capacity for self-reflection. And so we do this. Um, the question, who am I and why am I here, is a preoccupation uh, for human beings and, and for philosophers. We're trying to sort all of this out. Um, and we may not all think in philosophical categories, but as R.C. Sproul said, everybody's a philosopher. We're all trying to work out our uh, our, uh, our, our understanding of the world and our place in it. Now, we mostly, we mostly answer the question about who we are and why we are here on the basis of what we observe around us. We understand who we are based on what we see around us, by, uh, on our, uh, based on our family and all the rest. From our earliest days, we're being catechized to understand the world and ourselves in particular ways. And catechism just means teaching. We're being taught by our family. We're being taught by uh, our community. We're being taught by our church. We're being taught by our schools. We're being taught by all of these other uh, <coughs> excuse me, social influences in our lives that are teaching us 
um, who we are, or they're teaching us how to think about who we are. Who we are is, or who we think of ourselves to be, is a product of the world around us. We, we take all of the data, we, we, we do this maybe consciously or subconsciously, but we take all of this information and then we, we synthesize, we take all of this data, we, we synthesize it and we kind of ho- cobble together this framework for understanding the world and understanding ourselves in it. And what we often end up with in reality, is this kind of hodgepodge cluster of sometimes competing and conflicting assumptions about the world and about our place in it, leaving us to go with just whatever seems right to us. Well, everybody's saying all of these different things, and so I'm just going to do the best I can and just live kind of like, like this. This is what I'm going to do. We find ourselves floating on the sea of the world uh, like debris from uh, a shipwreck that we have no memory of. We're just tossed around by the waves and blown around by every wind of opinion and fad and news cycle. There's this madness of inputs. And so we just kind of, well, I just, you know, what's on TikTok? You know, that, that's, that's where, we, where we end up. We kind of go in, end up in this kind of uh, whatever kind of place. But thank God, literally, thank God that we have something more reliable than a cacophony of fickle witnesses trying to tell us who we are. What I want to do over the next two talks is to give some thought to why we are here from the perspective of Scripture, which ought to always be for the Christian the starting point, And then I want to work toward dealing how we live in light of what we learn. So, I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 1, um, verses 26 through 28. These are very familiar verses. I'm sure that you've heard this before. Stay with me. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, let's stop trying to fight evolution with the arguments of Genesis chapter 1, and let, let's let Genesis 1 do what it's meant to do, which is to reveal God's person, to reveal God's work in creation. Now, up to this point in the creation narrative, God has been uh, speaking things into being. He's, he, he's saying, let there be, and there was, and then he takes the things that he's formed, and he's dividing them, and he's rearranging them, and he's creating new things, and then there are swarming, and flying, and creeping, and swimming things all over the place, and they're all hemmed in by light and darkness, day and night, heaven and earth. 
Why was God doing all of this? What was, what was he up to? Now, on one level, we can say, well, God was doing this because it pleased him to do so, right? And that's a perfectly acceptable, uh, a perfectly acceptable answer. But on, on another level, we really want to look for clues. Why, why, was, he, why was he creating all of this stuff? What, what, was, what was he doing? What he was doing was making a place of matter and time and space where he could dwell. A place where out of the abundance of his love and glory and kindness, he could live with an other. And we shouldn't construe from this that God was lonely or that he lacked anything. All of this, as I said a minute ago, was an act of love. He was going to share himself with his creature. He was going to dwell within his creation. We could say, as Peter Lightheart does in his book, he was building a house for his name. He was building a sanctuary, a holy place, a temple. And in this temple, in this temple, he would place his own image. A representative of himself to fill up the sanctuary with his image. This is who man is. Let us make man as our image, to be our likeness. Let him have dominion over the house. Let him rule over everything. And God charged him directly be fruitful, multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. Now what God is doing in Genesis 1 is he's revealing himself. He's making himself known. He is glorifying himself. He's creating stuff and place and time, and he is making himself known in it. He is showing his glory. Or... He is glorifying himself. And in making man, he is filling the world with his glory. He creates man, says go fill the world, subdue it, go, go be everywhere, and he is filling the world. God is filling the world with his glory. Man is the image and glory of God. This is what 1 Corinthians 11.7 says. And in man, the whole world is full of God's glory. God glorifies his house with his image. And the Greek word there, we'll, find, we'll talk about this in a little bit, is the word icon. God glorifies his house with his image, with his icon, who represents the owner of the house and who rules over the house. This is who man is. This is who you are. This is why people are. This is what we were made for. Now, if you would if you would spend some time just meditating on that, that would be 
that would be enough. I would be pleased that we, we could just end there. That you would understand, not that you were just made to uh, look like a certain thing, but that you were actually made as the glory of God to fill the world. That is why you exist. As I sometimes do, I've lost my place. <laughs> okay, so we may think that when the fall happened, when the serpent deceived the woman and she ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate, we may think that when that happened, that all of the glory stuff just stopped. Well, obviously that's all broken. But that's not what the Bible says. Man never stopped being the image of God in the world. But he did fail to be the image faithfully. Man became a deceptive witness about the character of God. In fact, he went from bad to worse and began to tell the story in such a way that he became the center of the story. It became about man's glory. He believed of himself that he was worthy of the sanctuary. And that that was the point of all this all along. It doesn't take very long in the Genesis story before we see that man had become so utterly corrupt that God chooses to destroy the sanctuary and all of the image bearers as well. But of course... God loves the world. We see that when God is making the world, He is saying over and over, it's good. He's looking at it. He's saying it's good. God loves His world. His judgments, God's judgments, which are altogether perfect and righteous, were that his creation, including him, his image bearers, his icons, were good and very good. So he rescues his creation and man through the one man and his family, Noah. The charge is given to Noah again. Fill up the world. Go subdue it. Rule over it. And he made a covenant with Noah promising his own faithfulness. I will be faithful to you. But then we have man again imagining himself not as image, but as God and setting himself up as a ruler not only of the earth, but also of the heavens. And he sets about building a tower to establish himself. And again, it doesn't go well. But God's faithfulness, even as he destroys the Tower of Babel and sends the people off in confusion, God remains resolute. He loves the world. He loves his image-bearing man. And so he calls Abraham out of a place of death. Right. So when, when uh, uh, in Genesis 11 we have the account of the Tower of Babel, and then at the end of Genesis 11 we have God calling Abram out. And this is, this is interesting. In Genesis 11, toward the end, the last two paragraphs. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor fathered Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died. 
in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred of Ur and the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives, and the name of Sarah, uh, Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, uh, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah, Sarai, was barren and had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and his son, Abram's, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan, but they came to Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So we have Haran dying, we have barrenness, the barrenness of Sarai, and then we have Terah dying. So all of this, the, the, the cumulative uh, uh, a result of, of all of this work was death. It was a place of death. We have death and barrenness and more death. Out of this death, God calls Abram. He says, this is right immediately after that, Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So out of, out of this this death, and this is a, a, a thing that gets recapitulated over and over in the scripture. Out of this death, we see this promise of life and multiplication and blessing so that man is made so that he can go and image forth God as his glory and his image bearer in the world. We see God's relentless, loving intentionality in striving with man to keep pushing him to be what he was meant to be. And the story goes on, though it's one flop after another. Israel syncretizes with, uh, they, they incorporate the worship of God with the worship of the pagan gods. Um, and they end up in bondage in Israel. Uh, and through Moses, God delivers them. And then he gives them the law. Right? He's, here, let, me, let me tell you what it's supposed to look like for you. Live like this. This is what it looks like to be my people. This is what it looks like to be connected to me. Here's this law. Live like this. Here it is explicitly. Just be like this. Israel, the offspring of Abraham, are the sanctuary beneficiaries. They are the ongoing recipients and beneficiaries of the promise of God, the promise that God made to Abraham that he would be a great nation and that in him the nations of the world would be blessed. This is another way of saying that Israel was representatively carrying out man's vocation of filling the world and imaging God in it. But by the time we get to the end of Israel's history, at the end of the uh, Old, Old Testament, man, by the, the time we uh, get to the end of the prophets, we see that Israel, we see that man is constitutionally incapable of fulfilling his created purpose faithfully. The word that best fits this futility, the futility that man experiences, he's been created for something and he just can't do it right. The best word is 
death. If man were ever to be made capable of living into his created purpose, he would need to be changed into something else. He could not continue as he was. He could not be left to his own devices. He would have to be remade. He would have to be reborn. So how would this be accomplished? Anybody? Jesus. Jesus. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Jesus. Jesus. In Jesus, who is begotten, not made, he, God himself, would enter into the world as his image bearer in order to put the world right. He would faithfully be what Adam and the rest of humanity had failed to be. He would himself take on man's death. And then he would fully emerge from death in order to overcome it and to defeat the serpent. He would be the faithful Israel. He would be a faithful Adam. The faithful Adam. In Jesus, God is revealing himself. Man's, man's, man's work, man's purpose is to make God known in the world. And in Jesus, God does that perfectly. Jesus glorifies the Father. He makes the Father known. In John 1, 14 through 18, and the Word who was in the beginning, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and nothing was made that wasn't made through Him. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God, the Word, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. What Jesus, what God has done in Jesus, as He has made God known in a way that we failed to make God known. Jesus has become what we were created to be. This making Him known is to reveal Him, to represent Him. Hebrews 1 says of Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus is the true icon of God. When we see Jesus, we see God. God is revealed. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Now, Hebrews 1 says other things too, of course, and those things are important, but we need to see of Jesus is that He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is the icon of God. He is the image bearer of God. He is the very radiance of the glory of God. In Jesus, God is filling up the world with Himself as His own human representative.
In Jesus, the creation narrative is recapitulated. It is retold. It is told in a new and fresh way. The entire story of God's faithful dealing with his image bearers from the beginning is all recapitulated in Jesus. And what that means for us, well, what God does in Jesus, he sweeps humanity up in that. The human story, Jesus' story, becomes the human story. Jesus takes us into death. But Jesus also takes us through death and into resurrection. He raises us to new life. The scripture says that we were raised with him. We were buried with Him. We died with Him. We were buried with Him. And now we have been raised with Him. To walk not just again, but to walk in a new way. To walk in a more glorious way. Man is remade. He is reborn so that he can fully live as God's image bearer. Colossians 1, 21 and 22 says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. All the things that were true of us in Adam are no longer true of us because we have the life of that we live in Christ. Everything that was lost in the fall has been regained and more in Christ. Everything that Christ has, everything that Christ is, now belongs to us. We have been remade to be human in the way that we were intended to be human. We were created for the purpose, and that purpose is to image God forth in the world, to glorify Him, to make Him known. And that purpose is restored and glorified in Jesus. And so when we ask the question, how did Billy Eilish ask it? What was I made for? We answer the question differently than she does. We answer the question, I was made for glory. I was made to be God's representative in the world. I exist for more than just to be amused. I exist for more than just to be born, have a few friends, have an easy life, an easy death, and no hell. I was made to represent God in the world. That's what people are for. That's that's what you are for. You exist to make God known. You exist to show God to be who He is. You exist in Christ for glory. as we'll see in the next session, that means you were created to suffer.
Our Heavenly Father, help us to see, help us to know, help us to find great comfort in who you have made us to be, knowing that we are not bouncing around like balls in a box or just islands floating, but we are created for a purpose. Help us to embrace this. Help us to to learn to, to, to live uh, according to your created purpose. Father, I pray for each of us that you would make this so. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.